Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Earlier this month, a quasi-surreal geopolitical game took place between the neighboring two countries of Morocco and Spain. Thousands of Moroccan migrants unlawfully transgressed into a Spanish enclave by the name of Suta, which is located in the heart of Morocco's North African landmass. In effect, the paradoxical scenario of thousands of Moroccans invading Morocco. With the help of Morocco's border authorities, thousands of would-be migrants crossed into Suta, which is normally off-limits to Moroccan citizens, prompting complaints by Spain of a breach of its territorial integrity, this in the heart of Morocco's landmass. So how did such a unique incident happen and why? With the help of Moroccan-American journalist Samia Razuki, we try to explore this interesting historical riddle. Samia Razuki is a journalist and PhD candidate examining modern Northwest African history at UC Davis. She is also co-editor with Jadalia. She spoke with Khalil Bendit. Samia Razuki, welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Samia, the diplomatic rift between Spain and Morocco over the question of sovereignty in the Western Sahara has widened recently when a Madrid judge ruled that the leader of the Western Sahara independence movement, Rahim Ghali, being treated in a Spanish hospital, was free to leave the country. And as a result, a sudden influx of up to 10,000 migrants and refugees to Spain's North African enclave of Sitta, after Moroccan security forces appear to loosen border controls as a form of retaliation against Spain. Tell us a little bit what happened. Describe the recent incident. For me as a historian, I would love to go back as far back in time as I can, but I think the most sort of important milestone moment has been when the Trump administration recognized Morocco's claim over the Western Sahara leaving the Moroccan government feeling relatively emboldened diplomatically. And I think that after the Trump's proclamation, Morocco felt that it had some leverage and it started to approach its allies, uh, specifically the European Union, namely Germany and Spain, with a lot more sort of emboldened diplomatic behavior. With Spain, Morocco and Spain have had an enduring and contentious history, one that has included colonialism and occupation and war and violence. Recently, however, with the Western Saharan issue, we see that Morocco's willing to put its own people's lives at risk for the sake of winning diplomatic favors. And so in the absence of any other significant diplomatic leverage, Morocco looks to migration as a tool to both pressure its European allies to its north, to ceding to its demands, while also sort of appearing to release sort of the pressure in Morocco, knowing that many, an increasingly amount of the young, educated and unemployed population are desperate to leave. And so it kind of hits two birds with one stone. Unfortunately, what happens here is there's a human cost to this. And we saw that with the numbers that 
didn't make it or for one reason or another were forced to go back. There was this very powerful story covered by Reuters with an interview with a young Moroccan boy who told the Reuters correspondent in Sipta that, quote, I would rather die than go back to Morocco. So there are two different points to this, right? It is definitely the diplomatic international component, but it's also domestic and internal. So my first question before we go any deeper is this. Western media tend to gloss over the bizarre relic of colonialism that is Sipta and Morocco, giving the impression that somehow it is located in Spain. <laughs> Please explain to us briefly the paradox that both Sipta and Melilla represent in the heart of North Africa, 60 years after the independence of the rest of North Africa. Yeah, and I would also add the Canary Islands as well. These Spanish enclaves, as they're known, have been under Spanish control for centuries. And I think we can go back to the 15th century with the Inquisition in 1492, one of the major historical turning points when the Arab Muslim Spain was forced out and we see this emerging dominance of Catholic Spain. And it was from then that Sipta and Lidia have kind of gone back and forth. But for the most part, for the most part, they've been under Spanish control. Now, well after independence, it's still under Spanish control. When it came to the actual independence negotiations in Morocco leading up to 1956, the nationalist movement, Estiklal Party, was willing to cede its claims to Sipta and Melilla and the Western Sahara, for that matter, in exchange for this sort of nominal independence. And then It was only until afterwards, you know, especially with the Moroccan Liberation Army, for them, their vision of an independent Morocco was one of an independent Maghreb, that its borders spanned from Mauritania to Libya, and that it was only until full independence of the whole entire Maghreb region had been attained that then we could call Morocco independent. But that was abandoned really quickly, mostly because the Moroccan regime was very quick to suppress the lingering activities of the Moroccan Liberation Army. So in 1956, Morocco becomes officially independent right. after 40, 50 years of, of a protectorate under the French. How did they just give up, they abandoned their claim to the rest of Morocco, uh, these two enclaves? It's not so much that they abandoned it. I think that it was about calculating what was tenable at the moment. And Morocco, along with Mauritania, signed the Madrid Accords with Spain, which essentially split the Western Sahara between Morocco and Mauritania. But Sipta and Melilla were never part of these conversations. Although in the ideology of nationalism in Morocco, they are Moroccan. But in terms of tangible political steps towards reclaiming it, these territories as Moroccan, it hasn't been done. And I think we can understand that there are multiple reasons for this. So, you know, just to give you a little anecdote, when I worked as a journalist in Morocco, I spent a lot of time in uh, Nado, which borders um, Lidia. And there's not a single person there in Nado who doesn't in some way rely upon or benefit from Lidia remaining under Spanish control. It's an entire economy that essentially supplies the livelihoods of the local population. When you go and you meet people in the north, actually it's kind of counterintuitive. They want it to remain under Spain. And beginning in sort of 2017, when we started to see this ongoing authoritarian regression that's happening in Morocco, um, there are multiple attempts of Moroccans, you know, mobilizing, marching towards Sitten Melilla 
in an effort to reach Europe, ultimately, mainland Europe. So it's always been this bifurcated question that doesn't fall along neat lines of nationalism, independence, and sovereignty as we know it. If there was a referendum to be had, I think we would be surprised by the results in northern Morocco about who should maintain control over those territories. The other irony, and, and this has been pointed out by some historians, is that we have a country like Morocco, which has suffered colonialism, itself historically has been an empire. And it still has laid claims to other parts of North Africa that used to be under one or the other Moroccan dynasties historically. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting, ironic situation where, unlike in Algeria, where clearly we see a colonizer and a colonized, you have sort of two empires clashing and overlapping. It's a very complicated situation. For people like myself who come from Algeria, we're used to a simpler black and white situation. Yeah. No, it's definitely an interesting point. And, you know, I think we can look at a lot of other historical examples, the Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, where the modern iterations of nationhood and nationalism look back at those moments of imperial power as something to emulate. And there's no exception in Morocco. Of course, sure, under Ahmed al-Mansur Dhabi in you know, the 16th century, the borders of Morocco stretched from parts of modern-day Algeria well into Mali and Senegal. Well, at the same time, Morocco itself was under Roman control at uh, one point in time. But I think severing that historical moment and idealizing, glorifying it for the purpose of sort of a nation-state ends up falling into a very problematic trap. And I think what we can look at with Morocco's ongoing control over the Western Sahara is very much an extension and continuation of that imperial past. And we can even look at Morocco's economic and political involvement in West Africa after having rejoined the African Union and its attempt to join ECOWAS, that it's still perceives itself as being an imperial power. Anecdotally, I spent some time in Mali and Senegal doing archival research for my project, which is actually exactly about the time of Ahmed al-Mansur Tehbi. And I was astonished to see the amount of advertisements for companies that are owned by the king of Morocco himself in Senegal and Mali, all over. And there is a sort of reverence to Moroccan power and Moroccan authority in ways that are very much connected to this imperial past. So it still perceives itself as an empire that's partly occupied by another empire. At least those two small enclaves are, still are. It's an interesting situation. The question of Western Sahara has festered for almost half a century now. Originally, the king of Morocco, Hassan II, it was perceived outside of Morocco at least as just a distraction to keep his people from... <laughs> repeating several attempts, serious attempts to overthrow him mm. uh, and his regime in the early 70s. And the tactics, if that was what it was, partly what it was, the tactic has seemed to work miracles for his dynasty as nearly unanimously parties across this political spectrum seem to endorse the nationalist cause of annexing the Western Sahara. 
And yet, to this day, parts of Morocco, as we were saying, are still under foreign occupation. Uh, you started answering the question already, but why is this uh, Western Sahara such a, a huge thing? And, and why does it reach across, apparently, maybe you can correct me, across the political spectrum in Morocco? No, I think that's an absolutely accurate depiction of the general consensus among Moroccans. You pointed to the several attempted coups against King Hassan II. And I think very much that not only, as you point out rightfully, that invading the Western Sahara was perhaps a way to distract not just the people, but also the military itself, which was leading these attempted coups, right. was also a very easy way to, again, look to that glorifying imperial past. Because essentially Spain withdrew, did not fulfill its commitments of seeing referendum actually happen, instead just handing off the territory to Mauritania and Morocco, which resulted in decades-long conflict, ceasefire in 1991, and you know a resumption of confrontations recently, that for Hessen II, Western Sahara was an easy way to handle and manage power balances. But it was very much folded into the formation of a modern Moroccan identity in light of independence in 1956. There was always a very tenuous notion about what it means to be Moroccan. And it's a question that every newly independent state of the global south had to contend with at some point in the process of forming as a state, forming as a nation. And for Morocco, the Western Sahara became something that was embedded in that fabric of Moroccan identity. It became inseparable from being Moroccan. And those who challenge it, question it, critique it, the first accusation leveled against them is that of being a traitor or a separatist or undermining the national integrity of Morocco. So it's still very much an enduring reality. I'm always struck by how nationalistic the atmosphere is in Morocco whenever I'm there. I know Algeria is quite nationalistic as well, having suffered the terrible war that we call a genocide more than a war at the hands of the French. But I'm shocked when I'm in Morocco how strident the tone of nationalism is there. It's even worse than in Algeria. And yet, as you're saying, it's not a simple picture. What defines Morocco? What defines the Moroccan, etc.? The borders between Morocco and Algeria, for example, are nebulous. Very and, much so. And they've caused problems historically. You could argue there was either no border or it kept shifting back and forth. Yes. The French, like any colonial power worth its salt, uh, made sure to leave the borders an open question. Absolutely. And I think it's it's very interesting to sort of draw comparisons with the Sykes-Picot Agreement in, in the Levant with the exactly. French. Exactly, exactly. And French imperials. We reaped the resources and we got what we wanted and we will let you all settle it. No, it's it's absolutely true. And, you know, the other thing with Morocco is because of its geographical location, it has always relied upon the central authority of Moroccan power as far back as we can go, has always relied upon a delicate balance that also draws from relying on international support or the international power or the global or regional power at the time. And so straddling this node where the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, Africa, and Europe converge is one that 
Moroccan dynasties learned very much early on that it was something that they could manipulate to their advantage. And this played a huge role in shaping the outcomes of, you know, various dynasties. And I think we're seeing something similar unfold right now. Morocco presumes that it could perhaps incite the right wing in Europe, knowing very well that its own people, Moroccans living abroad, especially in Europe, are a huge target of hate and violence on behalf of these emerging right-wing movements in Europe, mm-hmm. pandering to them through using migration as a political tool, despite the fact that Morocco's economy would not even be afloat were it not for the remittances of Moroccans living abroad, still using that to their advantage because they saw that they kept something that they could possibly benefit from, from these sort of right-wing parties and movements after it's successfully got the Trump administration to recognize its claims over the Western Sahara, something that not even the most Republican or conservative administrations, including Reagan, did. So I think Morocco is placing its cards in the hands of these right-wing movements, knowing also that there are major elections coming up, including in France. And so it's it's a problematic dynamic. It's very unfortunate, especially, like I said, Morocco relies on essentially that almost the entirety of Morocco's foreign reserves are from two sources, one being tourism, which has been completely non-existent this past year, and the second being remittances from Moroccans living abroad. And then you instrumentalize this question of migration to the disadvantage of your own people. And it's a very unfortunate reality, but one that's calculated, and I think they know exactly what they're doing. Yes, the Moroccan dynasty, at least as far as I'm concerned, my memory goes back to Mohammed V, who seemed to be quite popular in Morocco. But ever since his death, at a younger, young age, in his 50s or early 60s, mm-hmm. and his son taking over and playing games that have been, it's a little bit what you're talking about, this ambiguous and ambivalent relationship with the colonizing powers like France, like Great Britain, the States, Israel essentially selling its own Jewish population to the state of Israel in 1963. The king Hassan and now his son, Mohammed VI, seem to have always been very good at playing these games of, as you said, kind of sacrificing to some extent the interests of their own people to further their own personal and dynastic interests. And this has been called by neighbors like the Algerian government has been called uh, neo-colonialism because it wasn't de facto an alliance with these powers that have subjected Morocco, not supposedly have actually subjected historically Morocco to all sorts of exploitation and what have you. And yet the king, at least starting with Hassan II, if not before, Hassan II clearly made alliances with the poster child of colonialism these days, which is Israel. Right. Now his son is overtly embracing Israel. And as you were saying earlier, being emboldened by that, feeling that perhaps he's now invulnerable, he, he can treat the EU, the European Union, a lot more haughtily than, than he has till recently. Definitely. You know, the question of treating its supposed allies with this emboldenedness. It's not just limited to the EU. I mean, even the United States. Look, so when the Trump administration recognized Morocco's claims to the Western Sahara in its final days, 
everyone sort of held their breath to see what the Biden administration would do, what position would they take. And Morocco, what does it do? One of the first actions it takes is to arrest a Moroccan-American citizen, Shafiq Al-Amrani, who was known on YouTube as Larubi from Mirikan, and arrested him, charged him for criticizing state institutions, expressing his First Amendment right in the U.S. He was arrested for that in Morocco. And so it makes you question what is really honestly driving these interests. And I think ultimately it's, it's survival. Monarchies historically have not lasted. And it oftentimes gets to these very critical moments where the survival of an institution as archaic as a monarchy will have to come at odds with the well-being and the future of the people. I don't know that we've reached that irreconcilable point in Morocco yet, but I think we're heading towards it. The survival and the enduring centrality and power and wealth of the monarchy is inherently at odds with the survival, well-being, and wealth and happiness of the Moroccan people. And it's not clear. Well, I think it is clear, actually, that there is an understanding of that. And I think the Moroccan government is hedging its bets and pushing the limits of how much the Moroccan people are willing to accept and take. And I hesitate to even say it's solely the monarchy. I mean, I think that the security apparatus in Morocco, namely the police and the domestic intelligence agencies, have ballooned in their powers and prerogatives since 2011. Um, Morocco was oftentimes hailed as the model of the Arab Spring But covertly behind all of those glowing headlines was a steady consolidation of power and authority of the most significant security institutions in Morocco under one person, Abdul Latif Hamoushi. And we have seen nothing but a relentless crackdown on dissent, press freedom, women's rights, human rights. And I think this is all embedded with all of these issues that we're speaking about. So these questions are tied together, I think. And one cannot be separated from the other. So I think, especially historically, we look at moments of crisis, moments of exception that are very much taken as a desperate last resort to hold on to power. And like I said, I don't think that we're there yet with Morocco, but I think we're heading towards that. That's Amir Azouki speaking with Khalil Bendib about the recent tensions between Morocco and Spain over migration and border crisis. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
One striking moment in post-independence Morocco for me is what happened to Mehdi Bambarka, mm-hmm. who was perhaps the most popular man in Morocco after the king, although the king, although the king has not been very popular, the Hassan II. It's questionable how popular he was. He was very feared. I'm not sure how, how loved he was. But what struck me, and I, I interviewed Mehdi Bambarka's son a few years ago on this radio program, mm-hmm. was the incredible collusion of all the secret services of these colonial uh, powers, including also the U.S. and the king of Morocco against his own political opponent, his own fellow Moroccan. Well, not just political opponent, but also former confidants. Exactly. And has in the second initially had a very close relationship. And uh, yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things I, re- I recall remembering when I was reading the headlines of the death of, or rather the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, was remembering yes. the still unresolved disappearance of Mehdi Banbarka. And, you know, what we know are just what has been declassified, what we know from his family, but officially we still don't know anything yet. At the same time, the Moroccan state puts forth this perception of revering him by naming streets after him, recognizing his his role in, in the nationalist movement. But then his history stops at 1956, mm. when it becomes clear that he, like many others, including like the Moroccan Liberation Army, who I mentioned earlier, their vision and idea of sovereignty was at odds with that vision that the monarchy had. Certainly, Bambarka was not in favor of the monarchs and the aristocracy owning pretty much everything (laughs) of value in Morocco. Again, it's always disappointing for me as a former, I'm not a Moroccan, but my first few years were spent there, and they're very great memories for me. Seeing my second country, Morocco, being owned, literally owned. You, you look around and say, oh, that belongs to the king over there, and on the other side belongs to his brother. Right. It's, it's just flabbergasting. It's just very, very disappointing when you see so much poverty in Morocco. And that's, you know, that's been one of the recurring issues is how skewed development has been. You know, I was born and raised in northern Virginia. My parents took me to Morocco every year since I can remember, and I had a deep, deep attachment to Morocco. And the poverty was always something that struck me. And as I got older, I became more involved to try to understand why. It doesn't make sense. And that's one of the reasons I got pulled in and really sort of drawn to the goals and the objectives of the February 20th movement. And one of my really good friends, Moroccan journalist Omar Radi, he really opened up my eyes to the great amount of wealth that the monarchy, particularly the king, holds at the expense of the Moroccan population. His the amount of investments in, you know, the private sector, we're not even talking about like state-owned enterprises, just in the private sector level, is astounding. And it doesn't invite or entice foreign investments because why would you want to compete in an industry where the majority shareholder is not only you know, the wealthiest man, but also the most powerful man. And that same journalist, uh, Omar Radi, has been sitting in prison since July 29th, 2020, dealing with an array of charges, including espionage. But one of the reasons why I believe he was targeted was because his work centered on discussing that and exposing that, because many Moroccans are not aware, obviously, 
the terms of transparency for a private company are that are not that of the state. And especially under the current king, that line has been blurred significantly. There's almost not a single industry in which the king is not privately and personally invested in. And then so what happens then when <laughs> your subjects are also your consumers? And so I think that unfortunately what we're seeing is that the monarchy has treated its population in the way that sort of a business owner would, as opposed to someone who was actually concerned for their well-being. Another very symbolic way that the king and his regime seem to be ignoring completely the, the sentiments of, of their own people is the way they have normalized relations with Israel when Israel is getting even worse than it has always been towards the Palestinians, I am sure that this must rankle the majority of Moroccans. Tell me about the reaction in Morocco, although I'm sure business interests must be happy about it. What is the reaction to this normalization? This is such a huge point. First of all, I, I strongly believe that the normalization was very much just a formality. Morocco and Israel have had long-enduring ties since the creation of Israel in 1948. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned earlier, Moroccan Jews had to suffer not just under the Moroccan regime, under Vichy France, which occupied Morocco at the time, and also had to endure a lot of injustices in Israel where they were treated inferior to their uh, European counterparts who were coming from Eastern Europe and Russia and other parts of Europe, you know, placed into quarantine camps and only up until recently actually given high-level positions. So that's one thing. The second thing is historically the Moroccan population has always expressed solidarity with the cause of the Palestinian people. And under Hassan II, I think it was very clear that the interests of the monarchy were at odds with what the people believed. One of the most astounding sort of reports that we can now confirm due to declassified documents is that one of the major uh, meetings of members of the Arab League, which took place in Morocco leading up to the 1967 war, that Hassan II bugged that conference and provided access to those proceedings to the Israeli intelligence agency, the Mossad. So all of this is to say that this plus more has really shaped how Moroccans view and understand the conflict. When it was announced that Morocco would officially normalize ties with Israel, Morocco used COVID laws to prohibit and prevent protests. And that was the case up until almost maybe three weeks ago when we finally saw protests being allowed to take place in front of parliament, sort of condemning the ongoing atrocities um, that Palestinians are having to endure. So Moroccans, of whom include Moroccan Jews, Asidon, who was the founder of Morocco's BDS chapter, himself is Moroccan Jewish, and he has been at the forefront of advocating against normalization and he's had to sort of suffer the consequences for that he's always been targeted and and harassed and even assaulted at protests so 
I don't think we've seen the last of it yet, and they're aware. Um, the Moroccan regime, I believe, is definitely aware of this disenchantment, and part of that has been um, this very sort of opaque cloud surrounding the opening of the Israeli liaison office in Morocco, which, as far as I understand, which I may be wrong, last time I remember was that the Israeli liaison officer, right, because they're not calling it officially an ambassador, was recalled back to Israel. So I don't think we've seen the end of it quite yet, but it doesn't sort of really bode well, especially because many folks who, you know, are distant observers compare the situation in Israel and Palestine with Morocco and the Western Sahara. Now there's sort of a limit to that, but there's definitely something there that is shared, which is, you know, using settlers and settlements to drive out the indigenous population, sort of these very webbed networks of security and military, you know, tactics and technologies. Decades before Israel built its wall, Morocco already built its wall in West Sahara. (laughs) I remember that. So I think there's there's a lot sort of to, to, to unpack there, of course, but I don't think that it's something that's going to simply be that Moroccans will accept overnight. Coming back to the recent incident in Sabta, Morocco has been playing this passive-aggressive game with Spain. It's unable to get uh, its neighbor to the north to acquiesce to its own annexation of Western Sahara. It's now using... The geographical location of Sipta, which is, as we mentioned, part of Morocco's landmass, but still under under Spanish colonial rule, as a not-so-subtle way to pressure the Spanish state into concessions on the status of Western Sahara. Some people have called it the weaponization of migration, a la Erdogan, a la Gaddafi, before he, he was overthrown and killed. So Moroccans are not inventing anything. (laughs) This game has been played before. What of uh, Morocco's long-held dreams of one day being accepted as a member of the European Union? I mean, isn't this kind of game with Spain and to an extent with Europe, isn't that counterproductive in the long term? Definitely. And it's counterproductive in many ways, not just that objective, but speaking to this point of Morocco's aspirations of joining the EU, I mean, I think Morocco is very pragmatic in shifting its regional priorities. Morocco withdrew from the African Union decades ago and recently now rejoined. So Morocco is African when it wants to be, it's European when it wants to be, it's Mediterranean, it's Atlantic, but that's part of the history. That's and fine. That's yeah. nothing new. That's no, and, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the, the concept of being all those right. things it's, at the same time. right? It's the instrumentalization and the selective adherence to those particular regional affinities. And I think one important point that you know we haven't mentioned, which is that in October of this year, uh, the Security Council is due to renew its peacekeeping mission in the Western Sahara. And... In the absence of a Trump administration, I think Morocco has found that its strongest advocate and support in the Security Council is France. And 
As far as I understand, since April, Security Council has convened a few meetings to discuss this issue, which all have been held behind closed doors without any official statements released. Though it seems that Morocco's recent temper tantrum, if I will, emerges from the uncertainty of the outcome of what the Security Council will decide. I think the biggest question that we will end up seeing as a point of debate is something that Morocco has resisted and opposed for a long time, which is including a human rights monitoring mechanism in the UN peacekeeping mission in the Western Sahara. It was something that the U.S. administration tried to broach when John Kerry was Secretary of State and retaliatory response, Morocco announced that it was not going to participate in the joint U.S.-Moroccan military exercises, African Lions, which are actually happening right now. So the recent instrumentalization and use of Moroccan bodies and migrants in general, you know, because it was also many uh, migrants from other parts of Africa who were part of this wave, that it's acting out of concern, out of anxiety, out of worry, and out of uncertainty. And I think a lot of that has to do with not knowing where it stands internationally when it comes to the Western Sahara. I think perhaps after the Trump administration's proclamation, essentially, there was an expectation that other countries would follow suit, and that didn't happen. A few countries have announced that they would open up consulates in the Western Sahara, but as far as I understand, there has been no official opening of any consulate of a major power. So I think these are all factors that play into one another. And so if this is what it is, then I think that we're in for an ongoing saga up until the Security Council vote in October of this year. So Morocco seems to have uh, perhaps exaggerated its uh, perception of Israel's influence on, on all these countries, that they were expecting everything to fall into, into line as, as long as they were aligned with Israel, with Trump, and they're maybe a little bit... Uh, they're learning things aren't that simple necessarily. Well, you know, and even within Israel domestically, they have been contending with these ongoing uh, talks of creating a coalition. And so I think Morocco has grossly miscalculated the priorities of those upon which it has historically relied upon, especially in light of COVID. I mean, in terms of the U.S. at least, the Biden administration has shown that it's going to prioritize dealing with this pandemic internally. And international issues are going to be secondary. And I think this is an approach that a lot of countries are taking, and perhaps rightfully so. But I think Morocco, again, is the Moroccan regime, specifically the monarchy and the palace, is detached from the reality of what its people are concerned with in the immediate moment. Many Moroccans died because of COVID, because tourism is such a huge source of income uh, for the country. Many have been without jobs, uh, without any access to, to resources. Public support has been very meager in Morocco. And so I think instead of taking this opportunity to focus on its people, 
it has chosen to play and wage in a international diplomatic poker game that I don't think will, will end well for it. That's Amir Azouki speaking with Khalil Bendib about the recent tensions between Morocco and Spain over migration and border crisis. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. you is why is Spain reluctant to concede Morocco's claim to the Sahara since they have relinquished their own claims and former colony since uh, 1975? Well, I think a lot of that has to do, again, with internal dynamics in Spain. In terms of sort of civil society mobilization, there's a huge amount of support and, and sympathy with the Western Saharan cause. In fact, perhaps maybe the biggest source of international you know, civil society support for the Western Sahara comes from Spanish civil society. And I think Spain, the Spanish government, is well aware of that dynamic and that engaging in this, should they sort of follow the path of the Trump administration, it would open up a whole set of very paradoxical questions and issues within Spain, including that of the question of um, Catalonia, uh, which has been one of the sore points of Spanish history, right? The calls for, you know, a referendum and independence in Catalonia, I think, at least ideologically and in other ways, resonate with what the calls and demands are for among many Western Saharan people. So, I think definitely the internal dynamics in Spain are preventing the Spanish government from taking that step. You also mentioned that France is, has always been, ever since independence 1956, the Moroccan regime's uh, most loyal and powerful backer and sponsor. Tell us a little bit more about that relationship. Well, I think that relationship has deepened significantly within the past you know, decade or so. Again, I, I, I mentioned earlier this ballooning of the powers of the security institutions and apparatus in Morocco. And we really saw Morocco come out front and center when it comes to this question of security and intelligence gathering in Europe, especially in light of the ISIS attacks that took place over the course of the past decade. And one of the commonalities of those ISIS attacks that took place in Europe, whether it was in Spain or France or elsewhere, was there was almost always someone of Moroccan descent who was suspected of being involved. And not to mention that in terms of 
proportions of foreign fighters who joined ISIS, Morocco was quite high, high up there. And I think Morocco saw an opportunity to flex its muscles and to show its allies look at how effective we are in gathering intelligence, which is nothing new. This was something that Morocco has been very deeply involved in since 2001 with um, George Bush's global war on terror. Morocco was one of many CIA black sites. So I think Morocco has seen that using and expanding and focusing on its security apparatus could also be a way to gain the favor of its allies and France especially because we know that Moroccans constitute a huge portion of the immigrant population in France and if they can offer this exchange of we will do the intelligence gathering that that sort of proved to be quite a lucrative relationship. I still recall during my time as a journalist in Morocco, I interviewed Abdelhaq al-Khiyam, who was the head of what they dubbed as the Moroccan FBI. And the one point he kept raising was, we have been cooperating with France and providing them with information and intelligence on those that were involved with the Paris attacks in 2015. And so I think above all, and because of the gravity of those attacks in France that took place, Charlie Hebdo and, and Bataclan, that the reorientation of priorities in France was something that Morocco saw an opportunity to exploit. And intelligence and security cooperation, I think, has been at the helm, at the center of this deepening relationship between Morocco and France. In addition to all the other close links and bonds between the two countries, culturally right. speaking and otherwise, Algeria and Morocco have been, unfortunately, at loggerheads over the Western Sahara question ever since Spain left the Western Sahara in 1975. But really, their disagreement started before 1975, and that has to do directly with the mess that France left when Algeria finally became independent, refusing to leave clear borders like most uh, colonial empires I want to do, so they'll be needed when, when there's a war. They'll be providing the weapons. <laughs> right. In 1963, there was a war right after Algeria's independence. Instead of yeah. this wonderful utopian vision that both countries had during Algeria's war of independence, instead of a beautiful reunion, there was a war. And it was over this border that is still an issue. Morocco never recognized the border left by France that Algeria naturally decided should be the border. What is the current situation now between the two countries after almost 50 years of this terrible situation in the Western Sahara? In 1994, they closed their common border. It's estimated that the situation, this warlike situation or no war, no peace situation is costing each country about 2% in annual economic growth. It's a huge loss for both. How much benefit to Morocco versus how much cost does this Western Sahara represent? I think Morocco and Algeria, in terms of the governments, found in each other a very useful and convenient 
scapegoat for things start to go awry. And I think dealing with the ongoing expressions of dissent in Morocco, which haven't waned since 2011, you know, despite the fact that the February 20th movement came to an end, doesn't mean that protests stopped in Morocco. We had the Hirak movement in Derif, for example, in Jarada and, and many other places. And around the same time, we see the emergence of the Hirak in Algeria and the ongoing contending with that dissent in Algeria. And so the Hirak for our listeners who are not Arabic speakers it just means the movement, the dissent, the protests. So I think that for both Morocco and Algeria, because this narrative of the Moroccan sort of traitor that collaborated with the French and the Algerian traitor who has supported the Polisario becomes a convenient one to sort of distract from the major issues, which is perhaps why both governments have found that there's something to benefit from this ongoing animosity, at least a surface level animosity. But I think once you get deeper, I mean, I think one of the most profound and powerful conversations I had were when I, as a Moroccan, went to Tindouf, the Western Saharan refugee camps in southern Algeria under the control of the Polisario Front. There, as a Moroccan, I was spending most of my time with Sahrawi and Algerian journalists and we fantasized about a caravan that would just try to push through these borders as a gesture of solidarity among the people because none of us really felt that this narrative was reflective of our experiences and our realities. And again, I think it's something that is very much a vestige of that colonial past, as you mentioned. I think the possibility of an amicable and perhaps even a united Maghrib is one that would worry the neighbors in the north. So I think there's definitely a lot to sort of unpack with Moroccan Algerian dynamics. And what's interesting is, especially in light of this ongoing irresolution of the Western Saharan issue, will continue to be the scapegoat of a lot of domestic issues in both Morocco and Algeria. I think it serves as a convenient distraction, unfortunately, at the expense of uh, many Western Saharans, especially those that are in the refugee camps in, uh, in Tindouf and outside of it. I agree with you. At the popular level, it's a non-issue. People are very unhappy that the borders sometimes close and it's hard to get a visa, it's hard to get to the other country. There are yeah. families that are straddling the border it's a very unnatural situation, an ahistorical, and before colonialism, it, I don't think it really existed in the way it is right. now. And uh, Moroccans, you know, they love to say that former president Abdelaziz Bouteflika was actually born in Morocco, not Algeria. I, I believe it. A lot of Algerians have said that. They said, you know, that president of ours, he's Moroccan, but he's also Algerian, and you could be both, you know. I think that's, we laugh about it, and... But I think that it, that's exactly what it signifies, is that it's so easy to just deflect and, and say, oh, it's the Moroccans, oh, it's the Algerians. But I think what worries them are the possibilities of solidarity. And to go back to the incarceration of Moroccan journalist Omar Radi, one of the things that he did right before he got arrested was go to Algeria and express his solidarity with the Herat protests and speak uh, publicly comparing the situation in Algeria to that of Morocco. And months later, he ended up in jail. 
Of course. Just like his uh, brothers in Algeria are in jail who express themselves and try to do their job of journalism. So what do you see as the solution as a young Moroccan-American? We're now 60 years post-colonialism. How do you see these countries finally getting past all these intractable problems? You know, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I think the solution will end up coming from those of us that are in a diaspora. We call it, in both Morocco and Algeria, Ghorba. Exile. Feeling of strangeness and never being really at home. But I think that in the Ghorba, many Moroccans and Algerians have had opportunities to sort of actually exist and and live outside of that dynamic and that propaganda. And I think, unfortunately, because so many of both Morocco and Algeria's populations are ongoing, continuously leaving their countries because of the dire situation, that the solution will come in the form of solidarity between the people. I think, ultimately, that when Moroccans and Algerians really, truly come to an understanding that in many ways they share a lot more uh, than what they have grown up to being told will help resolve many issues in the Maghreb, including the Western Saharan issue, dare I say. <laughs> well, Samia Razukti, I want to thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's been a, a delight and I hope we can stay in touch and do some more. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Samira Suki is a journalist and a PhD candidate examining modern Northwest African history. She's also co-editor with Jadalia. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Isabel Wilkerson. All of those people that you listen to in Motown, they are all the children of the Great Migration. In fact, many of them might not have existed had there been no Great Migration. Diana Ross's parents, for example, her mother migrated from Alabama and her father from West Virginia. They met in Detroit, and here you have it. Um, the same with uh, the others in the Supremes. Aretha Franklin, her parents had come up from the South as well. The Jackson Five, their, the mother came from, um, came from uh, Alabama, the father from Arkansas. They met up in the North, outside of Chicago settled in Gary and you have all these things that would never have existed all of those people were related to the Motown sound which would not have existed had there been no great migration advancing the conversation to abolish racism for over 70 years 94.1 KPFA The 2021 Local Station Board Delegate Elections are underway. A donation of $25 by June 30th gives you the right to vote and to run to serve on the board. Cast your candidacy before July 14th. Visit elections.pacifica.org to complete the nominations paperwork online and to contact your local election supervisor. Leave a voicemail on 510-993-0320 if you do not have access to a computer. It's 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org.